The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of the Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen. Amen. So today we find Jesus partway through his final journey to Jerusalem. And it's a trek that spans 10 chapters in Luke's gospel. And it leads him to a place that is central to all of Judaism. Jerusalem is steeped in layers of history and meaning and theological significance. It's understood as the navel of the universe, this connection point between heaven and earth. And Jerusalem takes on kind of the persona of a character in many ways in Luke's gospel and its sequel, the Acts of the Apostles. At the beginning of his life as an infant, Jesus is presented before the Lord at the temple, as was Jewish custom. And throughout Jesus' ministry, Jerusalem is always there and being pointed to as a place where his work will culminate. It's there that Jesus will die. And it is where he will appear in his resurrected form in Luke's 24th chapter. It's also in Jerusalem that the Holy Spirit comes and fills the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And so today we find Jesus speaking of and to this city that holds so much significance for him. It's also a place that holds great significance for us, any of us who identify as Christian or Jew or Muslim. In the passage, Jesus is first approached by Pharisees who warn him that Herod wants to kill him and that he should rearrange his travel plans and be on his way. The Herod that's being talked about here, Herod Antipas, ruled over the region of Galilee, which is where Jesus spent most of his time in ministry. And he ruled it as a client state of the Roman Empire. Herod embodies the powers that be, not shying away from using violence or even death to maintain the status quo. But even with this warning, Jesus chooses not to rearrange his travel plans. In fact, he reaffirms that it's God that's setting his travel agenda. His mission to heal and liberate, to restore and deliver, it can't be denied. Through him, a new exodus begins and a new day of redemption will dawn when his work is complete. And then Jesus speaks directly to the city 
of Jerusalem, a place of both death and resurrection. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Now here, Jerusalem, it's functioning kind of in a rhetorical way to represent those in power, the people who are censuring the truth-tellers and who are trying to criminalize efforts that threaten the people in authority. It's not so much a condemnation of every individual person that lives in Jerusalem and certainly not against the Jewish people more broadly. We might consider it akin to, in our current context, how someone calls out Washington, D.C., while airing grievances about how contemporary power is hoarded and handled. It's about really more the people who are in those positions of authority, right, than all the citizens of the district itself. So Jesus speaks here with words of lament and words of judgment. He speaks to Jerusalem not as an enemy, but interesting from this place of maternal concern, from a place of mercy. Jesus gives us this really striking image of a mother hen desiring to gather her chicks under her wings. This image, it's tender, but it's also very fierce. It underlines the scandal of the gospel. And that scandal is that we follow a vulnerable and a crucified Lord, a Messiah whose outstretched arms on the cross will rise again to unfold all of us in a loving embrace that shields us from the power of death. In Jesus, God becomes vulnerable to all the joys, to all the assaults of what it is to be human by becoming one of and one with God's children. So in this moment, Jesus is anticipating. There's a warning right there in front of him that his life is being sought after. He anticipates the challenge and the suffering that's ahead of him, and he doesn't look away. He makes himself vulnerable for the sake of others. Pastor and author David Luce writes about how in our culture, we don't often equate vulnerability with strength or with courage. Vulnerability means we care, that we love, that we show concern, yes. But at our worst, we see vulnerability as a weakness, something that's to be avoided. And Luce writes, at our best, we recognize the need to be vulnerable to those people we care most deeply about. But we don't often see vulnerability as essential to living a courageous life. Yet here, and so often in the Gospels, Jesus shows us that vulnerability is essential to courage, and it invites us to discover the peculiar strength of being open to the needs of those around us. Not just our family or our closest friends being vulnerable with them, but letting ourselves be vulnerable with strangers, with people whose life experiences are far different than our own. There's some kind of peculiar strength that can be drawn from that type of vulnerability, and Jesus points to it time and time again. Now, being vulnerable, it opens us up to things and to feelings we'd rather avoid, be it parts of our own past or having the hard conversation rather than perpetually avoiding whatever elephant is in the room 
or standing up to the Herod foxes of our own day, and there are plenty of which we could choose from. But vulnerability also spurs us on to be more authentically human, to be more caring, compassionate, and courageous Christians than we would ever be able to be without it. Now here I am talking to you about vulnerability on a chilly uh, Sunday morning where you've all lost an hour of sleep already. And so maybe asking you to be vulnerable just feels like too much. Just one more thing to add to the list. Maybe it's too much in the sense that your heart feels heavy enough as it is. You are wearing it on your sleeve enough already. The pain of our world is already weighing so heavily on you. How can you expose it to any more? It's not because you don't care, but maybe because it's just overwhelming. I certainly identify with that. Maybe you're feeling threadbare and spent. Well, I'd encourage you this morning to remember that the same God who calls us not to look away in the face of injustice, but to keep looking at it and moving towards it with persistent love, is the same Lord who offers us a place of rest and a place of safety under her wing, when we need that place of safety and we need that place of rest. Our call to be vulnerable comes from a Savior who has walked away before us. It's not coming from someone on high, some edict, some call to be vulnerable that's being issued far and removed from our day to day. It comes from a Lord who has walked this way before and is still walking with us. Our God is a vulnerable and a courageous God, a fierce and a tender Lord who we come to know most fully through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. To be vulnerable, it is a courageous thing. It is living from the heart. It's the kind of living that Jesus embodied from the wood of the manger to the wood of the cross, stretching his arms and his heart wide open. Amen.